I'm going to be in 1 Peter again in chapter 4, if you want to turn there. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I am humbled to be standing here today, God, and giving this this privilege to preach your word. Lord, I pray, God, that I would take that privilege, that I would hold it in the place that it should be held with high honor, and that I would handle this scripture properly that I would handle it correctly, that it could be used, God, for the building and the edifying of your church, the edifying of the saints. Lord, that you would touch our hearts this morning, that you would give us a glimpse of your glory, that you would give us a glimpse into eternity, that we could, God, honestly say, come Lord Jesus. We could see him. We could be reminded of that glorious gospel that we could be reminded of what he has done in his suffering in his flesh. And in his name I pray, amen. 1 Peter 4.1, the first verse, he says, therefore. And so to kind of back up and give a little bit of a review of the last part of chapter 3, if you were here, you remember He was talking about, in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Because of that, he says, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. He talked about, in verse 19 and 20, how Christ went into the spiritual prison and preached victory. He preached victory. And then he talked about the gospel. The glorious gospel of which Noah had been saved and his family. And the same Noah. I was, I was listening. If you haven't heard. Um, I think a week ago. Answers in Genesis opened the ark encounter. And I was listening to some different discussions about that. And they talked about the door. It has one door. Which, by the way, this is a little bit side note. Um, there was one evangelist that was, I was listening to on the radio that said she had been using this as a, and it was a great evangelism tool. She would just go up to people and say, "Hey, did you hear they're building a life-size ark?" And she'd have pictures of it, and she would ask them this question: 
how many doors were on the ark? And she said, it is amazing the answers you get from people out there. Most people don't know that there's only one door on the ark. They'll say, oh, with it that big, it had to be 5, 10, 20. No, there was one door. And that's what we see back in chapter 3. We see Noah and his family being saved through that one door. That door is Christ. She's found this great opportunity to lead into the gospel. That door is Christ. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also. And then he went on in chapter 3. He went and he preached victory. He talked about the salvation that Noah and his family had. And then it said he went, let me just read it, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. He ascended. He is seated at the right hand of Father. He is on the throne. Therefore, arm yourselves with this same mind. He uses, I love the terminology here, to arm yourselves with this mind. Because the head has suffered, prepare yourselves as the body to suffer. Do you realize, if you, figure, if you picture this body, the head cannot suffer. The head cannot take a blow without it affecting the entire body, right? You can lose a finger and it doesn't affect the other finger. You smash your thumb, this thumb doesn't hurt. But you take a blow to the head and everything else is affected. Christ is our head, and because he suffered, we can expect, as the body of Christ, to also suffer. So arm yourselves. Prepare yourselves for this. He says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is, this is a twofold statement. Christ, he suffered in human form, didn't he? We talk about how Christ suffered under the wrath of God on the cross. He did. He also suffered in, in the flesh by the punishment that was put forth by men. But he has made satisfaction for the sin, right? Isn't that what happened on the cross? Christ was suffering. He's put on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of him, right? He's put on the cross. The sin was placed on him. But he made satisfaction for it. I remember I was, I was struggling with these things at one point in my life. Uh, I mean, I was understanding the gospel. I was coming to grace. And I understood the replacement that Jesus made. But what I didn't understand, and I, I asked some people this question, it's a, it, and I, I got some different answers. And actually... The simple answer I got was in the prison. One of the prisoners told me. But the question was this. If my punishment was eternity in hell, how come was it that Jesus doesn't have to spend eternity paying for the sins that I would have had to pay for? That's a hard question. When I'm coming to this, I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. He doesn't, he... The answer the guy in prison gave me was this. It was satisfied. That's the simple answer. God's wrath was satisfied on Christ. It would take an eternity of eternities for me to satisfy God's wrath on my own sin in hell. 
But because Christ was perfect, because Christ is God, because Jesus is the Son of God, and He lived a perfect life, His wrath was satisfied completely on the cross. It was satisfied. And so so the sin that was placed on Christ has been freed. Christ is no longer under that sin. It was satisfied. He is freed from it. And so man, who is now in Christ, shall suffer with Christ with reproaches and troubles. That's the main theme of the book of Peter, right? We've been going through it. It's how to handle ourselves. What is, what is, it, what is Peter addressing? Do you remember what he's addressing? It's persecution. It's reproach. And it's severe trials. I mean, remember, he's writing to this book, he's writing this, or this, this letter to the church who had just went through the fire of, of Rome. And they were being blamed, the Christians in this time were being blamed for the fire that Nero had set. That's what this book was written for. The persecution is such that we can't imagine, I don't think. I don't think we can even picture this because they were already being persecuted because they were believers in a one true God. And because of things we'll talk about later, because of their separation from society and their separation from sin, that brings persecution automatically. But now they're being blamed for the fire. So not only do I hate you because darkness hates light, but now you're responsible for burning down my house, destroying my business. My cousin lost his home. You know, those kind of things. Well, that persecution is incredible. Nero was killing Christians dipping them in tar and lighting the streets of Rome with them by burning them on fire. That's the persecution we haven't seen. He's saying you're going to suffer as the head suffers, so will the body. And Peter's addressing how to handle this, how to deal, how do we address, how do we behave when we're being persecuted like that. But it also refers to a spiritual death. The old man being... Barry, turn to Romans chapter 6. He says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's how we relate to Christ. That's how we relate to this suffering of Christ. The old man is put to death. And we, spiritually speaking, are raised to newness of life. So it's by Christ's Spirit that we're made conformable to His death. This is not something that we can do. This is not something that we can... I'm going to study it enough. I'm going to get enough of this knowledge. I'm going to hear the story enough. I'm going to read it enough that I am going to be able to relate to Christ's death. No. The only way this can happen is by the Holy Spirit. 
And that same Holy Spirit enables us to crucify the flesh. And then we, along with Christ, have literally escaped from the sin just as Jesus has. Why? Because it was satisfied on the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. If it was satisfied for Jesus that he didn't have to spend eternity satisfying it, he rose again on the third day, then it was also satisfied. That's our sin that was satisfied. If you're a believer in Christ, it's been God's wrath is not on you any longer. And it's immediate at your salvation. When you repent, when you put your faith, and when you see this light, when your eyes are open to Him, it is immediate. But literally, in a literal sense, it's continual in our lives. We're constantly learning. The Holy Spirit is constantly teaching us to put to death that old man, right? Unless you've arrived, which I'm sure none of us have. I'm sure Peter had not. But he's teaching us. So it's immediate in the satisfaction sense in that we're freed from that sin. But in a literal sense, we're still battling with it. And he's teaching us by the power of his Holy Spirit to overcome it. And that's why the term, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with this mind. That mind can only come through Christ from the Holy Spirit. And listen, it's invincible weapons against our own flesh. You can go read Ephesians 6 and you can see about the weapons and the armor of God. And that's what, that's, the, that's what comes to my mind as I see arm yourselves with this kind of mind. It's a battle going on and there should be a battle going on within your heart, within your soul, within your mind over these sins. And if that battle is not there, then you need to evaluate yourself. You need to stop. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If that battle is going on, continue in his continue in this arm yourselves with this mind of christ that if he was crucified that if he suffered you're also going to suffer and that's what we heard this morning about envy and jealousy and the truth is when we get envious or we get jealous we want these things we want this or we want that it is very much a we have lost track of who we are in christ Right? Because if we will remember what a wretch we were, and we're going to talk more about that as we go down, then we, we, we couldn't possibly want more. We have salvation. And isn't that enough? And he tells us why in, in verse 2. He says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We can't just beat rules into people. We can't just whip ourselves into subjection. You can't just try to get rid of sin by itself. The truth is, you have to have a why. You have to put off the old man and put on the new man. You cannot put off the old man without putting on the new man. There has to be something to replace your sin. If you're struggling with a certain sin, you can't just get rid of it, you have to replace that with something else. You replace it, obviously, with Christ, but sometimes there's more specific things you need to do. That's what he's saying here in verse 2. He's no longer going to live the rest of his time in the flesh 
for the lusts of men. We're now going to live for the will of God. We were going this direction. We've now turned around and we're going this direction. That's repentance. Right? And verse 3 says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, Peter's not saying here that everyone pre-salvation fell into all of those things. But what he is saying here is because of our sinful nature, because of our depravity, we all had that capability. We all had that mind within us to do it. And if you're like me, you can definitely relate to every one of those. You may not be able to. You may have had more of a legalistic heart where you didn't do any of those and you were proud for it before your salvation. But regardless of that, think of the time that we wasted in our pagan ideas, in our unbelief. That's what he's talking about when he says the Gentiles. He, he, he's talking about the, the unbelievers, the pagans, the ones, the worldly people. That's what we were. Each one of us was that. But we're not anymore. We've been changed. We've been washed. But he, he lists specific things here, the ways of the world, lewdness. And, of course, this can obviously point to sinful acts that we're dealing with today. And I think Peter brings this all together, and he points to reasons for persecution. But look at lewdness. Lewdness, a preoccupation with sexual desire. Are we dealing with that in our culture? Man, more than any time in the past, at least in our country. Um, preoccupation with sexual desire. We have, and we've talked about this in Peter already, we have, we are living in the middle of the time where good is called evil and evil is called good. I mean, it is amazing at how this has twisted. A few years ago, there was some there was some kids at school that were getting into they were reading a book about Wiccan Wiccanism, witchcraft. I didn't know a whole lot about it, so I asked the girl if I could borrow her book. I did. I read it, and it was witchcraft. That's exactly what it was. It was witchcraft in a pretty little package trying to make it look very modern and, you know, very acceptable to society. But it was witchcraft. And I gave those kids a Bible. And I got in trouble for it at school. And I thought, this is witchcraft. I thought it was pretty common knowledge that witchcraft is bad. Witches, bad, evil, right? And, and this was probably, I don't know, seven years ago or so. And we've, we've come a long way since then on evil being called good and good being called evil. And we're living in a time where lewdness is running rampant. And it's, it's getting more and more twisted as we go, right? I mean, 
Ten years ago, homosexual marriage was not a thing. Two years ago, it wasn't a thing. It was talked about, maybe in a few states, but now all of a sudden it's an accepted thing nationwide, right? By law, by our law. And, and that has opened the doors. I don't know if you've heard, but there's even more and more things coming in. Incest, uh, bestiality. We're living in a major obsession of lewdness. The next one he says is lusts, the indulgent of unlawful desires. And this one goes back to lewdness, very closely related. But it also could t- be talking about other things. It's just anything that's unlawful and having this indulgence of a desire in it. And he talks about drunkenness. I like the word drunkenness. I like the, the way that it is still worded here. Our, our, our culture, our psychologists would call it alcoholism and make it like a disease. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God calls it. God calls it drunkenness. It means to be overflowing with wine. That's what it means. It's drinking too much. It's drinking yourself into oblivion. It is a lush. I've been there, and I've seen it many times. It's obviously a sin. It's listed here with severe sins. Um Obviously, many people in Peter's time was involved with that. It's an amazing thing. Throughout history, men have found a way to make alcohol. Do you know the nomads would make it out of milk? Anything with sugar in it can be turned into wine. Nomads would make it out of milk because they didn't have any fruit. Men will go, it's it's our sin nature, but here Peter's saying, the drunkenness, the overflowing with wine. How much time have we wasted on that? It says revelries, loud and boisterous parties. And in that time, it was a lot of times related to pagan idolatry, pagan worship. They'd be out in the streets partying. And many of these, actually all of these, you can put them all together. It was all one big thing. It was all going on at the same time, just as you see today. Drinking parties, referring to gathering together for the purpose of drinking. Does any, there's some high school kids in here. Does that happen anytime these days? Yeah. We're going to get together for a party. What's the party for? To drink. That's it. It wasn't a celebration of something. No, that's what it was for. The whole purpose of this was to be drinking, which was to get drunk, which goes back to the other one. And then he says abominable idolatries. Unlawful idolatries, worshiping anything other than God. And in Peter, when Peter was writing this to Rome, obviously Rome had many, many idols. All kinds of paganism. All kinds of worship of temples and false gods and all those things. And you think, well, we don't have that here today. And the the truth is, you've all heard sermons on yes, we do. We have all kinds of things that we place above God, which makes it an idol. But we also are seeing more and more idol-like official idol worship coming into this country and don't think it won't don't think just because we're sophisticated and educated and we have computers and all those things that we won't bow to an idol because it'll happen there'll be statues and people will be bowing to them again and it's happening now and so he's saying look at all this that we've wasted 
in this. And then verse 4 he says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They, the world, they think you are strange. They literally do not understand us. They literally do not understand Christians. Look back at the look look back at the things that he listed right there. The friends, your family, your co-workers, they cannot understand how you don't indulge in the things that you used to indulge in. They can't understand how you don't indulge in the things that they indulge in. All right? Now, you may be fortunate and not be around a lot of people like that, and I actually am one of those. I'm around a lot of Christians, most of my, and I've been a Christian long enough that most of my friends are at least professing Christians. But there's still those people. Everybody has them in their life. You come across them in the job. You come across them. Families, most families have at least one black sheep, right? But there's people out there that they just can't understand why you don't indulge in those things. Especially if you did it before. If you were, if you were caught up in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and parties. Obviously, when, when you become born again... When you're raised to newness of life and that old man is put to death, these things right here should kind of start to fall off, right? You're not going to indulge in the same parties that you used to. You're not going to go out and party with the guys. I know I heard, I heard Paul talk about it. I don't remember if it was him or his friend Jason. They were playing football at ECU. When they got saved, I think it may have been Jason. Is that right, Paul? That well, he when he got saved, he just went straight into the football and told them all, "Hey, come Friday night or Saturday night, don't call me. I'm not going to be partying anymore." Now this is the guy that had been partying it up with them, right? So what are the what is their response like? First off, it's like ah, I won't last. Secondly, it's like what's wrong with you? And then, and then all kinds of accusations come. It's because, this is, this is why this happens. And you can examine your heart this way. If you profess to be a Christian, but you're still partaking in these things, you can, you can examine your heart. Their very own lives and consciences reprove them. And they will charge the Christian, listen, with hypocrisy, being unsocial, has anybody ever heard that one? Oh, you, you're too good to come drink with us? Come to, you're too good to come have a beer? Right? You're too good to come, we're, we're all going to meet at this pub, this bar, whatever. You're too good to come in with us? You have a holy, oh, you're holier than now. Anybody heard that one? Right? What's that doing? That's soothing the unbeliever's conscience because they know that you're right and they're wrong. But they're living in darkness. Darkness hates light, so they're going to do everything they can to extinguish that flame. That fits perfectly with the revelries, the drinking parties, the drunkenness. Oh, oh, you're too good now. Oh, you, you don't want to... Come on. And then it's like there's pressure because it, they feel like if they can get you to give in, 
It makes them feel better. See, I knew it wasn't possible. It's impossible for anybody to do that. It's impossible to go without, you know, to actually be a virgin when you get married. It's impossible to not to go all the way through college without drinking. That's impossible. And if they can get you to do it, then it makes them feel better about themselves. But the end result is still the same. They're still lost. They're still separated from God. But look at the but but also consider the lewdness and the lust. It says they're going to speak evil of you. <clears throat> and this is what we need to prepare ourselves for because it's coming. It's already here. You will be called a bigot. You will be called a racist. You will be called a terrorist, hatred. Why? Because you won't conform to their lewdness and lusts. It's happened. I mean, it's already happening. Businesses have been shut down. There's bakeries been shut down because they wouldn't make a wedding cake for uh, homosexual marriage. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's more and more coming. And that's exactly... But here's the thing. Here's the good news about this. Peter's saying, listen, he's telling them in Rome, this is what's going to happen to you Christians in Rome. It comes straight to us now. This is what's going to happen to you Christians in Ada, in Stratford, in Oklahoma. This is what's going to happen. It's the same. It's the same devil that's working now that was working then. And he's not, he's not tricking God. He's not getting any ground on him. It's the same. And so Peter has given us a warning of this. And he's telling us, be ready for this. Arm yourselves with this mind. Arm yourselves with Christ and his mind because it's coming. We're going to be called bigots. We're going to be called terrorists. If you speak out, Against certain things, you'll be put on a terrorist watch list. There's, there's Christians who are put on a no-fly list right now because they're considered terrorists because what they're against Islam, which is real terrorism. I mean, it's, it's incredible what we're seeing, and yet I'm telling you, we need to prepare for that. And then look at verse 5. He says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter's saying all of these things. They're going to speak evil of you. Which, by the way, the, the terminology there in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily say it's of you. They're going to speak evil. And whether it's of you or of Christ, listen, if they, this is important to get this, if they are speaking evil of you because you are living for Christ, they are speaking evil of Christ. When Paul was going around, or Saul was going around and persecuting the church, and he had just been responsible for the death of Stephen, and he was going to, he was binding Christians and putting them in prison, and, and God met him on the road to, to Damascus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Who you are persecuting. And Jesus was, where's Jesus? He said it, he's sitting on the throne. No, Paul was persecuting Christians. That's the body of Christ, so he's persecuting Christ. So remember this. Take, 
pleasure in this. Take comfort in this. When it comes at you, it's coming at Christ. And listen, He can handle it. He already has. He's already shown that. So no matter how hard it gets, take comfort in that. It's kind of like when when you're a kid. I, I remember I thought my dad was just the strongest, you know, smartest man. And I think that's pretty normal for a young boy to think that of, a, of his dad. And I remember I, at school... I was not afraid at all about what the school could do to me as far as if I got in trouble. I wasn't scared. I mean, what could they do? Suspend you? Stay home. Give you swats? Well, I was, I mean, that, that wasn't that bad. They wouldn't hit you that hard, right? I wasn't afraid of that. What I was afraid of was what my dad would do when I got home. And so there were times when my dad would say, you know what, that... that he didn't agree with the school. He said, you know what? You can do this. And it may be something that was against the school's rules. I'm not saying that's okay, but I'm just saying. When that happened, I had all kinds of boldness. I had no fear of what I could do. Why? Because my dad was was backing me up. Well, listen, we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords standing behind us saying, you go forward, you take this ground, you stand solid on the Word of God no matter what they call you, whether they call you a bigot, whether they call you a child molester, whether they call you a terrorist, whatever they're going to do, whether they lay hands on you and start to beat you, or even if they kill you, it doesn't matter because I've already won this battle. I have your back. And that's what Peter's saying. He says in verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So all of these things are coming, but don't worry. Don't worry. Why? Because they will give account to him. He has your back. They'll give account to the ones that they're speaking blasphemies against. They'll give account to Jesus who all judgment is giving He's ready to judge those who are still alive and those who have already died. And they will give an account. And it will be, I heard one preacher say, it will be both wonderful and terrible. It will be both wonderful and terrible. It depends on which side of the aisle you're on. And listen, you want to be on the right side of the aisle. You want to be on the wonderful wonderful side of the aisle. In verse 6, he says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. For this reason, because Jesus is sitting ready to judge those who are alive and those who are dead, The gospel was preached. Why? Because that is the only means of salvation. Apart from the gospel, we all will be judged. Apart from the gospel, we're all just as bad as the worst. Right? Because we've sinned against the holy God. But because because he's judging, because this justice is coming, because he wants to show this attribute of justice, 
he also will show his attribute of grace and mercy. And the gospel was preached. It was preached also to those who have already died. And I won't get into, there is lots of differences in the commentaries on, on that particular thing. I'm going to read it as it reads. Those who are dead, those who have already died, it was preached to them that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And listen, this is saying this. Death does not hinder Christ from always being our defender. So even in death, he is still our defender. Even in death, the gospel is still true. They can't take it away from you. All of these people with all of their accusations, all of these people with all of their means of persecution, and they come, it, it comes in such a broad spectrum. It can be death on one end of the spectrum. It can be ridicule on the other. It could come to losing a job, losing a house. It could come to being thrown in jail. All areas of persecution are out there and they're all coming and none of it matters because they cannot take away your salvation. They can't do it. They can't separate you from the love of Christ. Death doesn't even hinder your salvation. And Peter's consoling us here. He's consoling believers here. Christ's power extends beyond the grave. Isn't that what he proved when he came out of the grave? He was there three days. We heard about that the last time. He went and he preached to the spirits in prison. And what happened? He came forth, overcoming the, de- the grave. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 55. Now let's back up to um, 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's what I was talking about earlier. You can't, you, the, the corrupt body has got to put on incorruption that comes through Christ. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory See, if you remember you go all the way back to what got us into this mess the sin in the garden of eating and death was pronounced on mankind and we're living in this curse that's why when we sang that last song even so come Lord jesus my heart just swells The whole creation groans for that day. I mean, we're suffering. And it's not getting better. And it's not just persecution. The creation in its its curse is suffering. The thorns are still there. We're still fighting against death and sickness and sin. But he says, he says, I lost my place here. 
death is swallowed up in victory. In, in verse 55, O oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It's gone. And that's what Peter is referring to. That's what Peter's pointing back to. So no matter how hard the times get, no matter how bleak it may seem, listen, death is the worst, right? That's the end result that we all want to stay alive. We're all fighting to stay alive. Well, not now. Not anymore. That's not the worst anymore. Because death is over. It's been defeated. Christ proved that when he came out of the grave. And he says, verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the victory comes. It's in Christ. It's all in Christ. It seems so simple, but yet it is so profound. It seems so simple, but yet it is so lacking in our culture. There's all, we have this conflict going on. Even within the church, we have conflicts going on. And the answer is there, and it's so simple. I heard, I was listening to a sermon the other day dealing with the racial tension that we have in our, in our country. And no doubt, we have a problem. It seems worse now than it has my whole life, this racial tension that's going on. It's a result of one thing and one thing only, and that is sin. That's it. There's no, there's no deep, there's no hashtag campaign that's going to find the answer. And this preacher, he said, he said I have the answer for the racial tension. He said it won't ever be a big, people won't broadcast it because there's no money to be made for it. There's no books that can be written. There's no movies that will be made about this answer. The answer is the same thing that's the answer for all other sin, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's simple. Preach the gospel. Is the Black Lives Matter campaign helping? No. It's the blue lives matter, the all lives. No. What matters is Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm gonna, I, I didn't intend to go here, but I think it's necessary. I was, I was a very racist person before I was saved. So I can relate to Peter in this way. How much time did I waste in my life hating other races, especially blacks? And I can tell you this from that perspective. In my old flesh, what was going on right now would have infuriated me. It would have taken my racism, it would have placed it here and magnified it that much. That's what would have happened. Now, it doesn't now. Why? There's one difference. It isn't because somebody taught me a biological thing that there is no difference, even though that's true. I think I knew that was true, probably. I, I didn't care. It wasn't because somebody showed me all the good things that this race had done and this race had done and this race had done. Or all the bad things that my race had done. And it really wasn't. No, uh, all the statistics in the world wouldn't have changed a thing. There's one thing that made me not racist anymore, and that was Jesus Christ. 
Now take that and apply it to every other thing that we're dealing with. You want to solve homosexual marriage? Preach the gospel. You want to solve all these problems with all this tension in politics? Preach the gospel. You want to solve the problem with um, theft and debauchery and... I mean, you name it. We preach the gospel, but be warned that when we do this, it's not going to come without a cost. It's going to come with this persecution that Peter says. And here's another thing to think about, too. If we're not receiving any persecution, especially now, what are we doing? Are we really out doing what we're called to do if there's no persecution coming? If there's no trials coming our way over Christ... For Christ, what are we doing? Are we really living for Him? Are we really proclaiming Him from the housetops like we're called to do? Are we going and preaching the gospel? It will shake things up. Jesus, I mean, even you can even see it come Christmas time. What's the big debate? Keep Christ in Christmas, all that stuff, right? What's the reason? Because 2,000 years after he died, his name is still powerful. Just his name is so powerful, they want to take it out. Why? Because he intimidates people. Why? Because he lived perfectly. We can't live that way. We can't hold to that standard. So 2,000 years ago, what are we going to do? We're going to kill him. We're going to put him on the cross. We're going to get rid of this guy. He's too smart. He's too good. We can't handle it. He makes us look bad. We're going to kill him. What are we doing 2,000 years later? We're going to kill him. It's the same. It's no different. And what I'm telling you is, us, as the body of Christ, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to kill you. It's going to come to the point where it doesn't matter. They're going to want to stop your mouth. They're going to do all kinds of laws to make you be quiet. They're going to make all kinds of laws to make you not be able to have a normal marriage, not be able to preach the gospel, not be able to to evangelize. Uh, Nate was telling me in Russia just this week they passed a law that says you can't evangelize anywhere outside the church, not even in your own home. That's coming here. Why? Because they cannot stand the goodness of Christ. It's too convicting. And they cannot stand it. But listen, if we will go forth and preach this glorious gospel, men will be saved. And they will change. They will not be racist anymore. I can speak from experience. They will not, all the list that Peter says here, they'll, not, they'll, they'll, they'll quit being drunks. Right? He'll save you from that. He'll save you from the partying. But that's not the reason you come to him. The reason you come to him is because you love him. He has caused you to love him. And I don't know. I don't know who's here who has not done that. I don't, I don't know who's here who just needs to be encouraged in the persecutions and the trials that they're in. I know this. Look to Christ. If you haven't ever believed on him, today is the day of salvation. Repent. What sin is in your life that is so important that you wouldn't turn to this glorious God, the one who overcame death, the one who overcame sin, the one who bore your sins? What's, what is it that you can't let go? 
Repent. Turn to Him. And for all of you who are Christians, I say this. Arm yourselves with this mind. With these invincible weapons against our flesh, with these invincible weapons against the evil one, against Satan and his angels, that we could withstand in this time of darkness, in this land of darkness, and that we will see the prize and we will see the reward in that last day. That's why John said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I I just, I, I thank you, God. As I'm reminded of my former life. Lord, I can remember being the happy-go-lucky guy. I know that's what was on the outside, but I was miserable on the inside. And you came and you saved me, and I praise you for that. I thank you, God, that that hatred of racism is gone. I thank you that the drunkenness and the revelries and the lewdness and all of those things, that you bore them for me. And I praise you for that. And I pray, God, I pray that everyone else can can see that same grace here today, that they can be reminded of the glorious gospel. And, Lord, I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that if anyone's here who has not put their faith in you, that you would cause them, that you would open their eyes this morning and cause them to repent, grant them repentance, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.